and welcome to Season 2 of the StoryFest podcast. StoryFest is a biennial celebration of the art of storytelling held here on Murramurang Country in the Milton Mollymook, Ulladulla region on the beautiful New South Wales South Coast. The episode you're about to listen to was recorded in June at StoryFest 2021. You can learn more about StoryFest at our website, storyfest.org.au, where you can also subscribe to our newsletter. Every month we feature some terrific book recommendations, author interviews and fabulous book giveaways. As a bonus, subscribers get first dibs on special offers and early bird access to tickets for all of our events. We'd love to see you at future festivals. Before we begin, we'd like to thank the Ulladulla High School Didgeridoo Group for providing the wonderful musical intro to this podcast. Now grab a cuppa or put on your walking shoes and enjoy this episode from StoryFest 2021. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Jane McCready and I'm delighted to be talking today to Charles Massey, writer, farmer and passionate advocate for a new and more sustainable way of doing agriculture in this country. Before we start, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land that we're meeting on today, the Murramurang people of the UN Nation, and pay respects to elders past, present and emerging. I'd also like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land we'll be talking about today, the land where Charles lives and farms, the Ngarrigo people of the high country. Charles, tell us about that land where you grew up. What was your childhood like? Uh, And welcome everyone, thanks for coming. Um, Thanks Jane. Um, I grew up as an only child on on the Monero, which is on the eastern side of the Snowy Mountains. Um, It's a tough country. Um, When the mountains get snow, we get wind, and um, so we're in a rain shadow. But it's beautiful uh, natural grassland, a lot of it. And um, so growing up as an only child, my mother died when I was about four and a half, and so my father remarried a few years later. But I think being an only child growing up on a farm with lots of bush, there's a lot of positives from it. You, you learn self-reliance, you, you live in your own head and your own imagination, and um, in many ways um, it can be a benefit being an only child, yeah. Did you wander the country? Did you have a lot of freedom as a child to explore? Yeah, I was, I was pretty well left alone. Um, so I'd have um, uh, both pet dogs and rabbit dogs and go off hunting rabbits on my own a lot. Or with, We had some um, recent German immigrants, uh, station hands, and they had a couple of children. I used to go off with them. But when I got, say, to uh, eight to ten, it was the bush that really attracted me. We've got uh, three, four hundred acres of native bush at the back of the farm and um, I was able to go and explore that and, and wasn't scared by the age of ten to camp on my own up there and, and it was a real privilege. Mm. So what did you do in the bush? I just tried to, I had a, a book on tracking and it was an American book unfortunately but it was wilderness skills and um, tried to teach myself tracking and, and but also uh, I was sent away to boarding school when I was eight, um, small school, and we had a, a wonderful teacher, I remember I was about ten, who was a keen bird watcher and ornithologist, and he got me right into bird watching, so it wasn't hard to amuse yourself both night or day up in the bush 
tracking the respective birds and mammals and that sort of thing. So you learned to be very quiet, I imagine. That's right, yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, you're the third generation to have lived on and, and worked this particular land. When you were growing up, did you imagine that this was your destiny? Is that how you thought of it, that you would necessarily be the next farmer on that country? Yeah, I did at the time, and um, uh, I had uh, my father, um, was 47 when I was born, so he was almost another generation. And so I had to make the decision after I left school. I wanted to go to university, but um, he was, he was, uh, had had his first heart attack by then, and so it was a difficult decision, so I, 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 I stayed at home for two years and then eventually went. I just didn't want to deny the chance for that education and used to come back and work in the holidays, that sort of thing. Mm. And you didn't know your grandfather, did you? Who was no, he died before I was born. Yeah. yeah. Would, you, would you read us a short passage from the book about what your father told you about sure. your grandfather? So this is uh, early on when I'm sort of setting the scene in the book. <coughs> Too much technology here, so I'll get this adjusted. <laughs> I especially remember one story my father told me of their days spent cleaning up country, cleaning up in inverted brackets, cleaning up country in the 1930s on our farm. They were burning timber that had dried after ring barking. There was one particular tree a giant ribbon gum whose stump I can still see today, it's still got the ring bark marks around it, to which they set fire. After an hour or so of heat and smoke, a sugar glider appeared high up from out of a hollow. He then set sail and one of the men caught him in his hat after a 60 metre glide. In quick succession, seven more followed, landing in exactly the same place as excited men took turns to catch them in their hats. And bearing in mind that sugar gliders live in a hollow in a family group, can be eight or ten of them. But I've often wondered what happened then. Did they let the dogs kill the beautiful marsupial gliders, who always nest in family groups? Or did they let them go, and if so, to where? Because all local tree territories would have been taken up by other gliders. Somehow this displaced family of sugar gliders seems a poignant signal of all the loss and disruption that came after that first settlement in 1788. I, I could hear the cries of pain coming from the audience as you were reading that. I could hear people in the audience going, oh. There's, and there's another passage in the book that uh, you, where you describe as a child driving to Kuma, I think, and seeing one of the neighbours who's arranged something on the fence. Do you want to tell us what he's arranged on the fence? Yeah, I used to look at this um, every time I went to Cooma from about the age of 10 to probably even 20, believe it or not. Uh, there was over 40 wedge-tailed eagles that had been shot and strung up on the fence. Uh, and sadly, there's still a little bit of that attitude left. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, they have. Some farmers convinced that um, Westdale eagles still take lambs, which they might take the odd one, but, mm. but it's, it's disappearing, that attitude. But um, you can't imagine the, 
uh, disruption to an ecosystem when you take out the apex predator. The passage you read us, you, you go on to say that we can't necessarily blame those farmers. Why do you say that? Well, we'll probably get onto it later. I've been privileged to get to know and work with a, a senior elder from Ngarrigo people um, who were the uh, indigenous um, mob on, on our land before white settlement came. I mean, my great-grandfather came in the 1850s and so his son, my grandfather and my father, they, they grew up in that pioneering tradition and it's, I guess it's easy for us with our modern understanding of of ecology and all the writing that's been done on, on white settlement to be condemnatory. But I can understand that pioneering ethic in a way. I mean, I don't condone it anymore, but it's, it's easy to judge history from the present mm -hmm. when people were trying to make a living and, um, and ideas of uh, indigenous rights and, and well-being were just anathema at the time. Yeah, they were men of their time. Mm. So you mentioned that you went away to university. You went, you went to study um, zoology, I, I believe, at university. That's right. Um, what did you learn at university and how was it different from what you'd learned living on the land as a child? Well, it was radically different. Uh, and, and I had a reductionist professor out of Oxford as my zoology professor. And before I went to uni, I'd spent um, a couple of years, I used to trap a bird called a white-winged chuff, which is a social bird, really intriguing. Australia has a few species of birds that communally nest, where the aunts and, and previous daughters help raise a clutch. It's an adaptation to a tough environment. And I used to trap them and colour band them, and that way you knew individuals. Anyway, we had to do a major project, and I delivered this loving article on the social structure of chuffs. And, and he ripped up the paper and said, I don't want any of this opinionated social stuff, I want you to measure uh, how, much, how many times a rat will lick sugars off the, off the instrument or a stickleback fish will back away. And, and I thought to myself, yeah, uh, this type of zoology isn't for me because my heroes were the animal behaviourists like Conrad Lorenz mm. and Nico Tinbergen who won the Nobel Prize jointly for animal behaviour. So I finished um, zoology but I was really lucky at ANU in the early 70s. Uh, the first course in Australia, and I think it was the third in the world of, of uh, holistic thinking, came in called human ecology, where we were consciously taught to look at the whole and not a reductionist view. And so that was really what um, lit the fire in uh, at my university life. And later on, in, in, um, in my late 60s, when I went back and did a PhD that led to this book, it was in human ecology. Well, I did it, but I've just got one memory now when you talk about that. So I started uni in um, 72, just before Whitlam came in, so it wasn't hard to guess who we all voted for at the time to have cheap fees. But it was the time of, um, and I was one of the early members of the Australian Conservation Foundation because of what happened to Lake Petter, just broke my heart. And the Franklin was just emerging. And we had issues like whales and uranium the early Whitland period and um, so I went along to my first um, sort of demonstration, a bunch of students who'd probably been smoking things other than tobacco the previous night sort of thing and um, one of these 
Larrikin students turned up with, because the, um, the big sayings at the time were, keep uranium in the ground and save the whales. Anyway, this student turns up with a sign that says, keep the whales in the ground. And <laughs> it, uh, it was that sort of a, a, a joyous protesting atmosphere and uh, it did was good fun. Did you talk about those ideas that you were encountering at university? Did you talk about them with your father and how did he respond? Um, he wasn't that interested, even though he was, uh, he was a very good fly fisherman and you had to be a good naturalist to, um, to be a good uh, on challenging rivers. He did love his birds, but some of the other big environmental issues, no, didn't, um, wasn't on the radar. Mm. So you mentioned that your father had a heart attack. How old, how old were you when that happened? I hadn't finished my university course and... Um, he had a big heart attack, so I came home and um, took over management and finished the degree part-time. Mm -hmm. And you were in your early 20s? Or yeah, I was about early. 22, 23. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a massive responsibility to take on at that age, to take over the running of the property. Yeah, and, that, and the consequences were I, I didn't, I'd grown up on a farm, but I didn't know anything about managing it. And so I sought uh, the best of best advice locally, which at that time was all the best operators were heavily industrial, a lot of fertiliser and um, what we call set stocking. You'd put sheep on a paddock and they'd be there most of the year, which destroyed the diverse ecology. And so I, I thought I became a, a pretty good manager, traditionally, um, trying to sort of manage that way. And then we hit the uh, the five-year drought from 79 to 83, uh, just after I got married too with uh, little kids. And, um, and I continued managing traditionally and I turned our farm into like these boards. And um, this is despite someone who's biophilic and I saw some of our country blow. And um, I think that was the head-cracking event at the end of 83 where I realized you know, this isn't sustainable and we had a big we had a growing debt because by keeping our animals which I thought were the most valuable asset whereas obviously a healthy landscape is your main asset um, I thought the animals were the assets so we bought a lot of grain in and, and um, developed the debt that, it, that in time uh, meant we had to sell a bit of land to stay viable so but that was the head cracker that in time led me to realise there had to be a better way. You said you saw some of the country blow. Tell us what you mean by that. Well, uh, we'd got it down like this floorboard to, we destroyed the grasses and, um, and so the topsoil was exposed and because of the livestock hooves, the structure had broken down so you get a big wind and that precious topsoil goes and it could have been thousands of years old mm. and uh, it was a big wake-up call. I mean, I think the tragedy is that if you think back over the last 20 years, even in the last two or three years, that's still happening on a broad area of Australia. And, and without getting heavy on the ecology, the minute you s uncover your ground and expose it to the elements, wind, sun, that's the first step in creating deserts, what's called desertification, the very first step. And, and I don't think modern farming, whether you're ploughing it or overgrazing it, it's the first step in destroying uh, thousands of years of build-up by the biology. It's the biology that creates healthy soil and 
humus and things. Um, and I just didn't understand that at the mm. time. There's a, there's a scene in the book where you're climbing a mountain in New Zealand that relates to that. Can you just tell us about that? that? That's right. Um, while I was at, at uni for my sins, I got into serious mountaineering and um, one of my first trips to New Zealand, and I was with a senior Kiwi guide going up the upper Tasman Glacier and we were carrying heavy packs and we stopped for, for a rest. I noticed this red colour in the ice and, and I said, um, that's an algae or something. And he was quite aggressive. He said, no, that's your bloody Mallee drought of the 1930s. And millions of tonnes of dust travel up the 4,000 kilometres. The tragedy is, uh, that was probably the second or third occasion and we've probably had two or three since. I mean, the, the amount of dust that comes off the pastoral country and the cropping country in Australia and, um, uh, you know, the fine book written about it way back in the 30s, um, um, Flying Fox and Drifting Sand, a wonderful writer who'd come over from England to study those two issues. Mm. So you have this devastating drought at the end of the 70s and the start of the 80s and you realise something has to change. How did you go about working out what had to change? Well, I was also trapped because we were pioneering a merino genetic business that was based on good molecular genetics and biology, which was a complete contrast to the traditional powerful industry. So again, I got trapped thinking, well, we'd created, and we were working directly with the leading Italian manufacturers like Gemma Lasagna and people like that. And I believe, well, this is really important. We, we could change an industry here. Um, so I was, it was a trap for another 10 years before I realised that, however exciting that is, number one has to be the healthy ecology. And by that, by that time, uh, the ideas were coming out of Africa that had been evolved by a Rhodesian and then Zimbabwean wildlife ecologist who had asked the question, this is from the 1960s, a guy called Alan Savory, who's now, uh, his work led to probably the regenerative agriculture grazing method that has changed more acres, hectares across the world than any other regenerative method. Uh, tens of millions have been changed through this ecological grazing. And, and he asked the question, You've got these giant migratory animal herds, which you had at the time in the um, 60s, still in, in parts of Africa. And he said, how come they're the healthiest grasslands you will ever see? Huge diversity and robust health. Anyway, eventually worked out that it was, you know, millions of animals, high density, a lot of dung and urine, a bit of trampling for seeds to get into. But they were never there for more than a day or two because you had the big cat predators pushing them. So you had... Those are the ingredients, high animal density, inputs from the animal's rumens, because the biology in the rumen can help reseed the soil and a lot of it's similar. And then a long rest period before those grasses were eaten again. Anyway, that's now been refined to human management by dividing more paddocks and concentrating animals. And it's just revolutionising grassland and soil ecology. And, and, um, uh, and, and Australians now at the forefront of doing that as well, so it, yeah, it's, it was a wonderful development. So you're, you're replicating, or not exactly replicating, imitating perhaps that, that natural system that happens in Africa by dividing your paddocks into smaller paddocks where you have that very concentrated 
eating of the grasslands yep. for a short time. That's right. And then you have your apex predators in the system as well, which is us. Which right? is us, that's yep. right. We've replaced yep. the lions and all that sort of thing. Yep, yep. <laughs> Welcome to being an apex predator. <laughs> well, and look at the impact we're having on, on the earth. So, would you, would you read us another passage from the book that describes your property as it is today? Sure. I can get this technology organised. Yes, I'm sorry to do that to you again. <laughs> so I just, um, what I tried to do in the book was, which is why everyone's here today, I think, it's all about story, as you know, where humans are made for it. And, and tried, tried to slip in as much story and imagery as I could. It is late December, a time of intense baking heat. I go for a long walk across our landscape where a once green, diverse grassland sward smells like freshly cut hay as the plant sugars dry. Listening to the morning bird chorus, which is overridden by the warbling of magpies, I contemplate the connections and interconnections of our world on the farm of flowering trees and shrubs, insect hatchings, temperature, atmospheric pressure, wind currents, aerial odour streams, and thousands of other factors that trigger and enable this ancient movement of birds, insects, and other creatures across our landscape. By mid-morning, on the older parts of the landscape, large patches of vanilla lilies unfurl their pastel flowers beneath candle bark and snow gums. Around them, bees buzz, bathed in rich scent, while orbs of rich yellow button daisies present their curled silver side leaves to the thirsty sun. Beyond them, open grasslands are stippled with white flecks of flowering danthonia. This is butterfly, insect, and arthropod time. <coughs> A common brown butterfly among the candlebarks falls like a dead gum leaf, twisting to earth, only to suddenly spread wings and glide away, while painted ladies delicately flit from flower to flower. Other insects fill the air. The subdued hum of flies, the loud buzz of demonic single-minded Christmas beetles, the quavering thrum of grass cicadas, the clustering of lost bogong moths on a fence post, and the slow waking of black prince cicadas, red-eyed and torpid in the morning, but then as they warm, their full foot song beginning in scratchy fashion and then rising en masse into a deep humming buzz that resonates in the eucalypt canopies. On the pads of sheep tracks, black wasps choose this time to bore nesting holes in hard ground, while under the shaded cover of huge granite slabs, ant lions, the personification of patience, dig their inverted cones of slippery death in the dust as they lie invisibly in wait for careless prey. Returning this morning, I watched the blue-tongued lizard swim across the edge of a dam, while high above, a wedge tail circles slowly in the washed blue sky. And close by, as I dissected the grasslands, rosellas hung sideways off thistles, napping their seed, and further on a wagtail rode a sheep's back, 
plucking gently for nest fibres. Finally, after breasting the hill and seeing the homestead and beyond it, a broad, healthy, rolling landscape of bronze patches mixed with khaki, yellows, whites and dun browns, I was prompted to ask myself, what is it that makes a landscape? And how, in the face of Australian summers that now, year by year, seem to be fiercer and more desiccating, do I continue to manage and regenerate this extraordinary world around me. I think, I think you can hear from that how intimately Charles knows the land that he lives on and all the other creatures and plants that he shares that land with. He, he, I said to him earlier in the green room, he's a poet of his land. It's, it's, there's, as well as a lot of science and knowledge in this book, there is extraordinarily lyrical description of the land and everything that lives on it. That question you ask yourself at the end of that passage of how can you continue to, to manage that land in a regenerative way in the face of all the challenges that confront us, many of which are out of the control of individuals as the climate changes, what answers have you come up with? that question. Yeah, that's the key question. Um, first of all, I'd say I think uh, anyone, and there'd be some people here who've run livestock, um, lambing, calving, you learn to be really observant if you want to be good at it. And feel privileged to grow up in nature, that goes without saying. Um, in the last few years, I've been privileged to work with a wonderful writer uh, and thinker, an environmental social change agent called Paul Hawken in America. Uh, in fact, his first job, his editor said to him, look, I think it was in Alabama, um, down the south anyway, he said, um, look, this, there's this guy called Martin Luther King who's about to walk over a bridge. I want you to cover that story. So that was his sensitisation to social and big issues. Uh, after a long career, um, about three, four years ago, he co-opted 70, 80 scientists just thinking about climate change here, and I think we should get onto a discussion that's wider than just climate. There's nine planetary systems that are now destabilised. Um, he co-opted 70, 80 scientists to see uh, what are the uh, 90, 100 best methods of pulling carbon dioxide down putting it in the soil or wherever to alleviate climate change. And they published a, a famous book called Drawdown, which went into 25 languages or something. And when I was in California a few times, I, I got to know and work with, with Paul. And, and um, in discussion, if you looked at the top 20 best methods of pulling down carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, out of the top 20, 10 of them were regen agriculture, regenerative agriculture, whether it's grazing or agroforestry or um, organic cropping or whatever. And uh, if you put them together, that 10, and said regenerative agriculture, by a country mile, regenerative agriculture is the best way to address climate change, which is incredibly exciting. And then uh, I'm privileged still being attached to ANU to work with some of the leading climate planetary scientists and uh, atmospheric physicists like Will Steffen and others who you'll read about with all their work. And um, uh, 
what they've articulated, which we don't hear enough about, we only hear climate, but it's, it's, it's a, a, a fascinating phase that if, the fact that if you look at the universe, as far as we know, there's only one blue-green planet, and that's the Earth we live on. And it was actually life itself, beginning about 3.8 billion years ago, that in time created the conditions for life. And now there's one species threatening that. And um, so by the time that extraordinary process of life over billions of years had created an atmosphere and a protective ozone la layer and a few other things, we know there's nine planetary systems that sustain uh, our planet in a healthy function. And um, seven of those, you could say ten, because nitrogen and phosphorus cycle is interrelated, but seven of those um, are, are under major threat. But those seven are what regenerative agriculture and we humans can address. I mean, we're into the sixth greatest extinction event in the history of the Earth caused by humans. So that's biodiversity, there's, there's climate, there's the water cycle because you pull down carbon, it has a huge impact on the water cycle. It has a huge impact on land clearing, stopping that and, and covering the ground and biodiversity comes from that. And then you've got nitrogen, phosphorus and the more carbon dioxide we put in the ocean, the more acidic it's getting, which is gonna have huge impacts for the release of oxygen and things like that. So uh, this is really exciting stuff that we land managers and people that starting to buy healthy organic foods and, and uh, natural fibres that are uh, processed in, in a responsible way, uh, jointly we can have a huge impact on what is without doubt the greatest existential threat, threat that our species has ever confronted. So it's exciting stuff and that's what gets me out of bed. <laughs> yeah, and there are people suggesting that the, the 21st century wars will be wars for water. There are others suggesting that we've reached peak soil, that, you know, we we're using our soil resources in an unsustainable yep. way. How does regenerative agriculture address all of these issues? Well, like if you take the grazing and a lot of the new regenerative cropping does not plough and expose the soil and destroy the soil biology, it keeps it covered. And, and once you get, I mean, uh, in my teaching to masters and third year students and uh, in my book, it's, you can simplify it down to really four key landscape functions. Everything starts with the solar energy. So as a landscape manager, I see my role as to stack on my land as many solar panels, those green pluriplasts, as I can, to grab the sugars and put it into the soil. And in, you know, that's 101 really, uh, 101 sort of ecology. And, and, and once those sugars go into the soil, uh, through the uh, plant roots, they release the sugars uh, the root exudates and, and things like root fungus uh, feed on that and they will um, their symbiotic partnership with the plants is to go off and access um, lots of nutrients for the plants and uh, and things like the root fungus, the microhazal fungi and other microbial biology is what fixes the long-term carbon and starts to change the colour of the soil and, and puts the carbon back in the soil, some of it for long term. So, and once you start doing that, it has a huge impact on the uh, water cycle because it's, it's through carbon and the biology that you can change the whole water storage capacity. So you don't get the runoff that causes erosion and... Yes, and, yeah. your, and your soil structure changes until healthy soils are about 50% air and that's where you can store water. And, and along the way you've got the bugs working so you've got the soil mineral cycle getting back to health and all the chemistry balances. Nature's pretty amazing and 
working it out. And, and uh, the fourth one that follows is, is biodiversity because you start getting diverse grasslands and agroforestry and things. Your predatory insects and, and birds and stuff come. And, um, but all those sort of classic models forget the fifth function, um, which as I say is this square foot of real estate between our ears. Uh, the human impact. It's, we're number five and um, the fact we've dropped and accelerated into the Anthropocene is because what we have done by stepping outside the natural bounds of, of one of the Earth species. Mm. Well, somebody said to me yesterday in the context of COVID, we are the plague. There are a lot of us putting a, right. lot, a lot of strain on yeah. the Earth's resources. Is it is it feasible for regenerative agriculture to feed as many humans as we have on this planet? On the surface, you'd say, well, no. Um, but the latest United Nations statistics show that 75% um, of the world's farms are five acres and less, peasant agriculture. So we big boys in the industrial world think we're it but uh, we're actually not. And uh, this huge amount of wasteland, if you go through Europe, France, or I was in France a few years ago, I was, I was stunned at abandoned paddocks, and that's happening through lots of Europe. Uh, yeah, we can feed it, but can we do it with healthy food? And uh, can we do it sustainably? Uh, not at the moment, no. What are the, the to use a, a term that belongs perhaps more to conventional agriculture, but what are the yields from these kind of practices? How do they compare with conventional? Yeah, that's, that's, uh, there's not enough evidence yet, but we know um, if you've got, say, you're an industrial cropper, and so heaps of Roundup glyphosate, which without getting into its impact on human health through the gut microbiome, but what it does to the soil, uh, along with the industrial fertilisers, you've got basically a dead soil, so that's, you've got to put the inputs in because the biology isn't accessing it. So if you go cold turkey like a drug addict at that time, it's not going to respond instantly. It's a, there is a trough in yield, unless you can put on what's now a rising amount of organic fertilisers and things like worm juice, which has remarkable stimulatory effects. Um, so you, we can't dodge the fact that initially there's uh, a depression, but the best uh, regenerative croppers that I now know are, are getting equivalent and sometimes better yields. Um, to uh, their na industrial neighbours, but they've slashed 90% of the industrial costs. And, and because they're not uh, lumping on uh, things like uh, liquid nitrogen, which has horrific impacts on both the atmosphere and the soil, makes it more acidic. Um, if you look at the cereal crops that they're growing under the industrial system, the cells are really expanded, they're very turgid. So they're far more susceptible to frosts and rain damage at harvest. So they're eliminating some of those big hits that all farmers in Australia get, or most farmers, at the wrong time. So as far as resilience and production long term, uh, it can be done. And, and as I say, look at the 75% of farms in the world. The, uh, a, an organic peasant agriculture is doing pretty well. How's it gone for your property in terms of costs and income? Um, yeah, our, our, our costs, we haven't fertilised in 25 years and um, I mean it's hard to yet measure yield because we're grazers, not croppers, but uh, we, we've now got diversity coming back into our native grasslands, kangaroo grasses and that sort of thing and it's a bit hard to get a, a, a full measurement even though we've got good uh, metrics 
to do so on because of the droughts. To preserve our grasslands, we have to destock radically or adjust, which has its own problems with disease and things. Um, but production-wise, I haven't seen uh, a depression. Um, but we're saving um, buying grain, but buying fertilizer, and we haven't. We've only used Roundup 20 odd years ago twice, and um, and that was twice too much. So we, we've uh, elim eliminated those sorts of inputs. And how have, how have you weathered drought since that big one in the early 80s? Well, uh, I mean, I can give you one example. This, it's this last big drought, which broke last June, uh, last July, um, we sold at least half our sheep and then put the others on adjustment as far out as Bendigo and places, uh, which had a bit of a cost, obviously, but we kept all our ground cover, like this rug here versus... We had a neighbour right next door who... Um, didn't do that and his country ended up like those boards and it was blowing. So in July when the drought broke we got uh, four inches, 100 mils and I, I went for a drive with my wife Fiona and said now the ecology is going to tell us the story and, and at only 10 mils out of that 100, so one tenth of the way in, his country was already sheeting water, it couldn't hold it and um, ours didn't run and at the end of the 100 mils his country was still pouring and the dams were full of mud and our country still hadn't run. So that water cycle, carbon cycle, biodiversity, um, and you see that contrast around Australia and yet the pe penny still doesn't drop. It's, <laughs> and that's, um, and I've been there, I can see why. It, it's, you just can't see that there's a different world, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I saw something Tim Flannery had written about the book and he obviously put a fair bit of time into this because he said if you, if you look at the properties that Charles mentions in the book on Google Earth, you can see that they are islands of green mm. surrounded by brown. Because mm. one of the things Charles does is write a lot about other farmers and what they're doing mm. and good practice where he sees it. So this idea, you know, I, I'm just imagining Tim Flannery sitting at his computer <laughs> plotting them all on Google Earth and going, oh, there's the green, there's the green, there's, uh, and it's all the places that you talk about. Why are so many farmers resistant, do you think? That's a whole area of um, psychology and sociology about the power of mental paradigms that we build and the way we've educated and trained. And, um, and they're like locked in cement. Um, the more I've looked at it in, in psychology and stuff. And, and, and uh, what led to my book was my PhD where I interviewed 80 regenerative farmers. And... Um, I asked the key question, why did you change? And that was across all of southern Australia. And in 60% of the cases, it was a major life shock that cracked open the carapace of their mind. You know, they burnt in a bushfire, maybe a marriage breakup, chemical poisoning, big droughts, whatever it was. And the other 40%, it was a series of little... So that's how powerful this carapace mm. thing is. You know. I, I mean, there is that... In, you know, we were talking about the pioneer farmers, the settler farmers earlier. There is that ingrained sense of the land as enemy that has to be mm. conquered, mm. I think, that many of the white settlers to this country had and a real resistance to, hit, to listening to the land and mm. obviously to listening to the indigenous people of the land as well. It, it's quite a shift, I think. To, to go from seeing the land as, th as a thing you have to conquer. It is. It's interesting. Uh, 
Um, obviously, I do a fair, fair few talks to farmers and university and things. And one of the PowerPoint slides I've got about uh, seven or eight years ago, there's a full page ad in the, um, the big rural weeklies, Land, Stock and Land, and it was for Roundup, glyphosate. And it had a white pointer in the midst of soil coming out of the soil. And, um, it, 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 and this dead, broken soil. And then all the, the gump on the right-hand side. And in the fine print um, were the words, trust your killer instincts. And, and so that's how the industrial world, particularly mm -hmm. the big boys, I mean, let's, let's not, this is about power. We've got the biggest companies in the world, pharmaceutical, chemical, big traders, driving this whole process. That feeds into a Western government like ours and the government policy into universities. There's only one new regenerative agriculture course just emerged, the rest of it uh, is still industrial in Australia, basically. Um, and feeds down through the Department of Ag, so that that entrenchment of those paradigms is, is very powerful, but it's, it comes from way up. Mm. I, I, um, I noticed recently that Bruce Pascoe, who, whose book Dark Emu I would recommend people read, um, has, has been given a position in the Agriculture Department at the University of Melbourne. You have a quite close relationship with some of the Ngarago people. Mm. Um, what have you learned from that? Well, I was just thinking about your question previously about um, which led to that shark story, our, our aggressive approach to dominating a landscape. Um, indigenous nations have got the complete reverse and I'm not telling anyone here anything new. It's, it's about long-term love and nurturance and total identification with being a little small part of that giant landscape and, and a huge long-term view and it's the complete opposite of our Western um, training. Mm. Mm. We, it's, it's hard not to talk about fire in this continent yeah. and I'm very aware that people around this part of the world had yep. a very close encounter with fire a little over a year ago. You've recently been experimenting with local elders with some of the fire management techniques? Yeah, uh, I have. There's, um, I think the, the, the statistics are something like about 60, 65% of Australian uh, flora, plants of various types, are adapted to fire. And, and let's not forget smoke. There's over 20 chemicals in smoke that, that triggers um, propagule germination and that sort of thing. And, and so we have a landscape pre-adapted to fire, a lot of us. And, um, so we, we get, uh, he's now become a close friend, uh, a senior elder, and, and we've run a few field days at home of cultural burning, cool burning, whatever you want to call it, in the autumn, which is the optimum time. And, and there's backed back by research from CSRO, you get more germination in the autumn versus spring in our country. And um, it's a very gentle approach, and uh, I've seen instances where it has suppressed dangerous fires, but I, I'm not going to go the next step and say as we go into these increasingly holocaust conditions with low humidity. I, I mean, I was a fire captain when we had a lot of trouble in the early 90s for five or six years. We had a bad fire bug and things, and it was always drummed into us. It, it's uh, temperature, wind, but humidity is the killer. Uh, and you get 
to below 10% humidity, you've got almost unpredictable circumstances. And anyone in this room who witnessed uh, 18 months ago, whenever it was, um, those conditions all rained. And uh, I'm not going to stick my neck out and say, with cultural burning or whatever, we're going to be able to prevent when conditions get into total unpredictability, which we're going to see more of because mm. of climate change. Mm. Um, so it's a really challenging issue. It's going to behove us to uh, you know, consider where we build, how we farm, what, uh, uh, what trees we put in. And I'll give you an example. Uh, a fellow I work with who's a really good forester, an agroforester, um, and, and when those big Braidwood fires, which went down the coast, they then came back over the, the range at Braidwood, and he was watching a, a crowning bushfire, and, and I've only witnessed it once when the fireballs take off when the gases explode. It was that sort of a fire. And then it hit his oak plantation, and within 100 metres it dropped on the ground, because oak canopies are full of water. So in some of the farming designing I'm doing now for other farmers, even though it's an exotic, but it's a really useful multi-purpose tool. Um, we, we're going to have to rethink some of our plantings and behaviour along those lines too. And there are some solutions, but I'm not going to say what's tragically happened to millions of hectares uh, is going to be immediately preventable because of what we're doing to the climate. Are you optimistic? Uh, yes and no. I know we've got the solutions. Um, um, and we've just had Tanya Plibersek up here doing a great job. But some of the other leaders in Canberra, you know, in the proverbial expression, I wouldn't feed them with a Shanghai at two paces. Um, and so until we get some sensible leadership, um, it's hard to be super <laughs> optimistic. Yeah. And, and the other issue, uh, before we we're probably are ready to go into some questions, yeah. the really exciting thing about um, what we're talking about, if, if you look at the trajectories and what's happened to those planetary systems since, say, 1960s when the fossil fuel release and the chemicals went up, you've got these exponential trends of all those problems. If you look at the modern human health diseases, delayed by about 15 years, same exponential trends. So it's what we've done to our food and the chemicals in our food, it's disturbed our gut microbiome, and that's a whole other story the implications for human health, which again, an organic regenerative agriculture uh, can play a big part in addressing, but mm. it's another discussion. There is so much more we could talk about in this book. Um, I'm going to open it up to questions from the audience. I might, I know this is what they did in the last session and it seemed to work quite well. If people want to stand maybe, if they, if they want to ask a question so that people can bring the microphone. Just before we take the first questions, can you just tell us what is behind the name of your book, The Call of the Big Warbler? Oh, yeah. Um, one of the people I interviewed, not far out of Canberra, and he'd been one of the nation's top economists, he bought this farm and he had a degraded creek. And he said, I want to show you what I've done. And, and so I went out and through good grazing, uh, basically just through good grazing with cattle, um, what was a dry, eroded creek had now healed and it was holding water and there was running pools and rapids. And it wasn't like it was an atypical time because we'd driven down past the neighbour whose creek ran into this guy's paddock and it was bare and it was denuded, there was no water and there's a fair bit of salt coming. And um, so it's gobsmacked at, uh, and it's a green grass in a drought that was sort of 200 metres away 
from the creek where the water would and while we were talking I noticed only a small patch of uh, reeds, Phragmites reeds, probably half the size of this stage. And while we were talking this reed warbler sang out of these reeds. And that was probably the first time since um, 1850s, so 150 years since a reed warbler had returned to that creek. And I thought what a metaphor for regeneration. Mm. Because a few water birds, birds must have brought some seed in and um, so yeah that's where the title came from, it's just a nice metaphor. Beautiful. Okay, um, somebody, somebody got the microphone. Yes. That's a good question, and, and don't worry, uh, we farmers like a latte as well. <laughs> um, look, I've just had to review a brilliant book that'll be uh, released in the next few months, a, a total expose on what's happened to the Murray-Darling Basin. And if you look downstream, the, the Californians have pretty much drained their entire aquifers with almonds, really thirsty trees. They've discovered um, the lower Murray-Darling and there's thousands of acres and tens of thousands of trees going in there. Um, I think it's a pretty good rule of thumb that uh, monocultures is not a good uh, natural model. Uh, and and there's, there's a thing called silvopastoral forestry uh, management, where yes, you have trees in the landscape, but you have multifunction underneath it and, and different types of trees doing multiple things. And uh, um, that's still part of the old thinking. And, and, but Let's bear in mind, it's being driven by big investors who are only looking at return, but they're going to take up all our water and um, just a basket case on the way. Yeah, good question. <laughs> he's, he's largely absentee and uh, he wasn't there that day. And um, at this stage I think it's beyond change there. But it is, similar examples elsewhere are changing people because what's happening in modern industrial cropping in, in, in America and Australian places, um, the, the yields aren't going up anymore because there's, there's no biology anymore. Uh, soils have lost structure and all those sorts of things um, but the cost is still going up and so the pressure is increasingly coming on um, what, what are called gross margins in cropping and stuff uh, so that, that, that's why uh, my, my guess would be that if you think about the innovation adoption curve we're probably into the uh, early majority now 15-20% it's really starting to get a go uh, worldwide uh, and of course to a lot of ancient cultures, nothing new about it. Um, 
I don't know if that answers your question, but uh, that's where I see it anyway. Um, look, I'm, I'm certainly no soil expert. Um, I mean, I've obviously I've looked at it, and, and I'm friends with a, a few guys. Um, I think there's probably truth in what you're saying about the intensity of condensed chalk poo. Certainly, urea long term causes things like acidity problem and not good for your microbes. Um, there's a huge movement in, in, a, in a linking between leaders in Australia and, and America or what's called multi-species cover cropping, which I'm sure you've heard of where you don't have to use any inputs because you allow the biology to really do it. Um, one of the stories I write about in the book is a remarkable couple in uh, Western Australia in, in the marginal, I mean, they're the, the growing crops in seven to 12 inch rainfall country. And uh, when they started cropping, it's about four hours northeast of Perth, um, they, they had 600 acres with a debt on it. Now they're, now they're farming 60,000 acres without a debt. And what they did over time was, and, and they have all the biggest machinery, they gobsmacked at how big, they've just used the same modern machinery and modified it. So when they sow their cereal seeds, for example, they inject uh, worm juice around it, which is biology, which you can buy now in drums from good producers of compost. And they at the same time inject uh, compost extract, which is the food for the biology. And that's led, uh, and no other inputs. And, and so they've eliminated 90% of their costs and, and they're getting now equivalent yields, but much greater resilience because they're not getting that frost and rain at, at harvest costs. And that's why they've been able to, to grow. So there's, there's a range of really exciting stuff um, doing it more laterally, uh, working with nature, but uh, it probably hasn't fully answered your question because uh, I'm not really a soil expert. I'm jack-of-all-trades in that area. And we're still working some of this stuff out, right? You yeah, we are. We don't have all the answers. Yeah, what, I mean, it's in interesting. One of the world's great soil scientists, Latin, Raul in America, won, won the Nobel Prize for what well, was obvious soil biology work, but he's still largely ignored by the industrial world. Mm. That's a great question. Um, 
I think it's going to be more shocks, um, more shocks to the bottom line. And we're just on the cusp of a lot more evidence coming out on the implications of things like glyphosate roundup in, in modern foods. I mean, you can bet that most of the industrial cereals, um, canolas, all those sorts of things, we know that uh, in almost every case glyphosate is in there. I mean, you've seen a big court case in America uh, awarded to the tune of billions uh, against Monsanto, which basically killed that company. But they would be wishing their legal team had done better due diligence um, when they bought it. Uh, so the evidence is, is, is coming on the, on the damage to that. I think it's going to be uh, recognition of the human health danger and some of the other things I've spoken about, but it's going to be that head-cracking thing to change at that level. And at the moment, all the key power bases are still dominated by those thinking more traditionally. And we, we do need economic measures that measure the value of the earth, don't we? So that environmental destruction is, is a cost when we're, when we're talking about economic models. That's absolutely right. And I mean, e e economists and ecologists talk about full resource accounting. So when we do an accounting about landscapes and our behaviour with it, we tend to miss out some of the most crucial ones, which is natural capital. I'm not sure if we have time for... all externalities, as this guy the front says, yeah. Do we have time for one more question, or are we, are we out? One more. Is there, is there, there's one up in the middle of the back there. Great question, and, and uh, your latter point is right. I mean, um, keeping that ground covered, like this carpet versus that, I mean, carpet being diverse grassland, even when it's dry. Uh, if you go out in, say, cropping country in uh, New South Wales, Western New South Wales, midsummer on a 42 degree day, it's 40 degrees at the surface, you go down half a centimetre, 65 degrees, there's a baking effect. Kills all the biology. Uh, once you expose that soil, you're degrading the, the key asset which we tend to ignore other than healthy soil structure, etc., which is the biological life. And, and then you've got heat radiating back off the surface rather than being absorbed. It, it's a, sort of all these factors play in. Uh, you've got no water cycle to cool the ground at night and, and uh, if it's really working, uh, in a healthy small water cycle, you're probably absorbing a millimetre a night at the pressure change at dawn and those sorts of things. That, that, that's all gone missing. So it's a great question and um, again, it's got to be part of that paradigm shift to change the thinking. But there's no doubt about bare ground in the cropping areas worldwide. You've only got to look at some of the satellite maps. It's frightening at times and, and peak, peak tillage time, just how much country we still expose to the elements. and, and lose both valuable um, uh, gases, uh, let alone uh, re-radiate the heat. Very informed audience. It's, it's a very informed <laughs> audience with <laughs> some detailed questions. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, we do have to finish. 
Um, but please thank Charles very much for being here today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Come and find us on our website at storyfest.org.au or follow us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter at Storyfest Inc. And that's Inc. with a C. We'd like to give a huge thank you to Kel Butler from Listen Up Podcasting for her recording and production expertise on this podcast.